Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Sofia Bogdanovitz, a Toronto writer and director known for her short film cycle Last Poems, which mixed documentary and fictional elements to explore her own family history from a present-day perspective. Her first feature, Never Eat Alone, earned her the Emerging Canadian Director Award at last year's Vancouver Film Festival, and she's bringing that movie to the Tiff Bell Lightbox on Saturday, March 25th for its Toronto premiere, along with three of her shorts, so this seemed like the perfect time to get her on the show. Sophia picked Dancer in the Dark, Lars von Trier's 2000 melodrama starring Bjork as Selma Jeskova, a single mother in an American factory town trying to save up the money for an operation that might save her young son from the same gradual loss of vision she herself is experiencing. This being a Lars von Trier movie, things go disastrously wrong pretty much from the jump, and the experience of watching the film is like riding a freight train straight into sadness. Except that Dancer in the Dark is also a musical, with elaborate production numbers and glorious songs and an absolutely shattering performance from Bjork herself, and that complicates things in a really powerful and unique way. It's a very specific work, and as you'll hear, unpacking it takes more than a little effort. This is someone else's movie. Um... I think it was uh, a film for me anyways, the first time that I actually had an extreme physical and emotional reaction. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, a film that I can think of before that where I reacted that way was Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet because I was a teen. Okay. But that was the hormones, I think, really reacting to that. But I... <laughs> You just sort of swept up. Oh, yeah. Like Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, why not? (laughs) Um, All that fast editing, it was, you know, just really something to get excited about. But I don't think um, it was a real genuine reaction in terms of um, what it was doing. And um, I saw Dancer in the Dark after... um, I had spent the, the year living in England and had like a crazy year and um, I had a boyfriend who was really into Bjork. I didn't really know who Bjork was and we just listened to Bjork all year and it was a really nutty time and then our relationship ended. I came home um, and I just wanted to kind of like get my hands on like all things Bjork and I heard about Dancer in the Dark and I was like, what is this movie? And I didn't even know what it was about. Okay. So. Which is like a little bit of a mistake. I was like 19. Yeah, you're kind of walking into a, a big room with a lot of mallets in it. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of a death trap. And I, you know, I, I throw it in and I'm like, oh, it's a musical. Okay, great. And as the film progresses and, you know, the demise is like pretty intense in this film, um, I just started like crying and sobbing like uncontrollably to the point that my dad and my brother like came in the room and they were like, what happened? <laughs> like, did someone, did a friend die? And I was like, practically, <laughs> but it was like the, the emotional reaction that I had, that I got from this film was so visceral and so strong because Bjork's performance is so authentic. And I don't think, um, and to date, I don't think I've seen a film that tops her the the kind of innocence and authenticity and sincerity that she brought to that role it just completely 
destroyed me and it still destroys me i watched it last week and i hadn't watched it in about like i think five or six years and it's a film that i avoid watching because it's so upsetting um but it's still a film that just like like i like i noticed what i was doing physically at the end of the film i was like holding my face during you know those prison scenes and like i just get so physically tense and there's no other film for me that does that that's why I chose that film. No, that's just, a good. That's a good choice. So when, <laughs> what, just to, to frame this, when would you have seen it first? How old would you have been? And, and you said you watched it on disc, I guess. So. Yeah, I got it on DVD. I was nineteen. So it was after the theatrical. Like how far after? Uh, five years. Okay. I think it was two thousand and five okay. and two thousand and six. So this is something that, about this movie in particular that's kind of fascinated me is that it's sort of disappeared yeah it's kind of been forgotten in a in a weird sideways sort of way and that von trier when people talk about him now they talk about the late stuff they talk about Mm -hmm. the big serious movies or they talk about the early trilogy Mm -hmm. uh and then breaking the waves came out on criterion a couple years ago and that got that back into it Mm -hmm. but it's some people don't know bjork was in a movie and and or well she's been in a couple but they don't know she was in this one and that she was this good in it. Yeah. So I'm always fascinated whenever anyone even mentions it. It's like, oh, what made you think of this suddenly somehow obscure <laughs> yeah. epic? But, you know, if you're if you're a Von Trier fan, it's mm-hmm. generally at the top. Of, for me, it's Breaking the Waves. That, that's my that's favorite. That's your favorite. Because, yeah. because at least it gives you that release. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. And then with Dancer, he came up with a new way to torque up the miserableism uh, oh, and, and did he ever? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and although there are releases in the film in the form yeah. of musical numbers, it's really just not. It's an unforgiving movie. And well, as the musical numbers get more and more sensational, the plot just gets worse and worse. Yeah. If yeah. you like, I was watching it last week, and I was really trying to pay attention. But every time there's a musical number, like by the time you get to the court scene, there's that like beautiful. Uh, court scene where they're singing you know she's singing you were always there to catch me and she's singing with uh, Novi her like uh, her her musical Czechoslovakian musical hero and at the end right when the the song ends she's sentenced to death like Mm. it just like it just goes in that direction so you get these like moments of relief but then you're punished for it yeah Afterwards, and it's it's such an awful feeling. Yeah, it's. I mean, Von Trier has always really enjoyed playing with his audience, engaging mm-hmm. with his audience. Yeah. The uh, the narration in Europa was the first time I really became aware of it, mm-hmm. where Max von Sydow is seriously intoning, you know, I'm going to count to ten. When we reach ten, you will be dead. Mm-hmm. And he's talking to the main character, but we're hearing it, mm-hmm. and you kind of wonder for a second exactly what this means and where it's going, and then. This weird, well, I mean, Dogma '95 was sort of mm. his big declaration of pranksterism. And mm-hmm. He was going to he he swears he never meant it seriously, but uh, of course he did. I mean, he does everything very seriously. Well, I think it's because I think he like does everything very seriously, but he also I think he's just like so sensitive and so vulnerable, mm. and he tries to hide himself okay behind those kinds of things like so he says really outrageous things and he does really violent things and he's really aggressive but i think it's because he's a person that um i think is very sensitive and does feel a lot but it doesn't justify those 
actions it's, of the yeah. racist things that he says, um, the yeah. misogynist things that he does to the leading women um, in his films. Um, it doesn't justify it at all, but I think it's just a way of putting up a wall and not really feeling those things. That's his defense mechanism. I think so. And then you see something like Melancholia, which is just so purely felt. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I even though I know it was a rough shoot and... I mean, They're all rough shoes. Yeah, exactly. I Let's that be honest. And, yeah, I find it out afterwards, and why am I surprised? Yeah, yeah. Um, but even though it was unpleasant for everyone, mm. the result... You know, I look at somebody like Xavier Dolan, who constantly tells me how much of a genius he is in every frame of his film, mm-hmm. and encourages his actors to contort and destroy themselves for his, for his art. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel the connection between the product and the man mm-hmm. in the same way that I do with Von Trier. I don't think I would like Lars Von Trier in a room. I don't think I would particularly enjoy talking to him. But yeah, I have spoken to a dozen people who have worked with him and just, again, they convinced me that it's maybe necessary. That what his process, whatever it is, is something Did they... Did they all am- get Stockholm Syndrome? Well, that's it, right? I mean, <laughs> they claim to have understood it going in. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually... the. But the, I I talked to everyone on um, on breaking the waves. No way, well, that's amazing. I'm old, and it was at TIFF. Yeah, uh, so in '97 awesome. it came, and I got to sit down with Stone Skarsgård and Catherine Cartledge. Damn. Uh, yeah, no kidding. Because um, <laughs> that's I mean, great. She, she died a few years later, and yeah. it's just awful. Really young, just one of those, the Jim Henson thing where you get a, you get a little bit of a, a flu and then you're dead. Mm-hmm. Just terrible, terrible loss. She was it's a really wonderful yeah. performer. And I uh, later I talked to Emily Watson um, about the film. I think when it came out on disc or something, mm-hmm. and or laser disc. That's how old that is. Ooh, laser uh, disc. <laughs> still over there somewhere. Yeah. But um, but the consensus was that they knew it was going to be hard. They knew it was going to be unforgiving, and every single one of the stars that had worked with him before, I think, but every single one of them was in. Uh-huh. And I guess you can't fault them if they go in with their eyes open, but it doesn't sound like it's fun. No. Well, and I mean, you have to like think about the position that these actors are put in, right? Mm-hmm. They want to be in a Lars von Trier film. His films are brilliant. He's a very accomplished director. They're bound under contract and they're financially obligated too, but you have to think about their reputation to the press and what the aftermath of that is as well and what that looks like. No actor wants to quit a film and especially with his reputation, they probably want to stay on and they figure, you know, things are bad when they're on set and they've invested so far, but why not just finish it, it yeah. you know, and then they're happy with the result. But then of course I think they have the right to question whether it's worth it or not. You know what I mean? And I think that some actors would like to sway away, I think, from the controversy and just look at the film as a whole as a piece of art rather than gossip about how difficult it was yeah. on set, which is I think something that Bjork did after Dancer in the Dark because I was doing a lot of researching just kind of like fishing around for quotes or like interviews and there wasn't really a lot that she said specifically to shooting on set because I don't think she wanted to propagate rumors afterwards and I yeah. think she probably just wanted to protect all of the blood that she had put into this yeah but project. she's also never made another movie 
Uh, well, she did do Drawing Restraint 9 with Matthew Barney. That's true. But that's like a project. No, I know, I know, I know. It's like an art yeah, project, essentially. But she never did... That's true. It's not fair for me to completely discount it. But I'm thinking, she before yeah. Dancer, she had made a film called The Juniper Tree. She did. Yes, uh, yes, yes. I learned that today. Yeah. Oh, I saw it. Yeah, uh, okay. I, I reviewed it for the star back when. And, and she had a mom that was a witch. They're both, yeah. They're sort of wandering around. They've been accused of witchery. So yeah. It's, it's a very... It's a pretty dull movie. Okay. But it's not bad. It's just about the boredom of the medieval age and how there was really nothing to do mm-hmm. for these two women except not be where they were and find somewhere else where they can be and try not mm-hmm. to be persecuted so much. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And she's not bad in it. But at the time, the only reason anyone paid any attention to this little import was because, oh, it's got Burke in it. Right. Um, she, on the record, she doesn't count that. Like, as an actual film that she was in. It's a movie. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, she's got lines and everything. She calls well, she calls Dancer in the Dark her first film. Yeah. And I, I, can, you I know, can maybe... sort of see, like, if you're not really sure who you are yeah. as, a, as a performer yet, maybe it's like a, a... What do they call the... What did Whit Stillman call the... the the book that he adapted, Lady Susan for Love and Friendship. It's it's not a naive oh, novel, but it's an, like oh. it's a there's a term of okay. for early work by Austin, yeah. because it's not part of the canon. She wrote uh-huh. it in longhand when she was a teenager. Yeah, and I can sort of see it because yeah. it's not it's not a bad performance in any way. But if you watch it and you know who Bjork is, you will be very surprised that Bjork isn't doing very much, mm-hmm, as mm-hmm, opposed mm-hmm. to Dancer, where she is fully present. Yeah, in every frame. It's it's. And as we were saying before we started recording, it's really painful to watch that. Yeah, because she she gave herself so fully to that role and to that project. And I was thinking about it today, and do you know of any other leading actor that also wrote the soundtrack for their for a film? Who was also the in the in the lead role? singing and wrote the soundtrack because she I think this was a part of the conflict as well between her and Lars was that he's not very experienced in the musical realm she was an inexperienced actor so this is where they came I think head to head yeah. on set because she would she he she explained to him what the concept of a demo was like this is a demo it's the, these are just notes kind of like a rough cut this is what it's sort of going to sound like like what do you think we haven't done the full recording yet and he would say like this is garbage i don't like this yeah, go hard. back um but she was able to take that and just realized he didn't know what a demo was so she just went ahead and then she would record it with the orchestra and then she'd come back and she'd be like what do you think and he'd be like this is great why didn't you play this for me in the first place (laughs) and then I think there was all this difficulty with in terms of like her like yes she did act in the juniper tree but I think she was coming into this project very green and wide-eyed and trying to understand what her place was in it. Um, and I think that, like, as, like, a, an inexperienced actor, a Lars von Trier film isn't, like, a place for, I guess, someone who is, like, new to acting to feel comfortable. Like, it's she probably... And she's a person that's very dedicated to what she does. She's a very talented, intelligent performer. She's, like, she's brilliant. Um... So I think it was really hard for her to be pushed so hard. Like, I I read up about how she disappeared for a few days. She ran into the forest. She was so anxious. She, like, ate her costume. <laughs> she I was heard. caught chewing her costume. I had not heard Did that. you hear about this? No. Yeah. And, I mean, 
she for in preparation for this role too she really tried to put herself in this character in Selma's shoes and to really feel what this woman was feeling and she said cell by cell I kind of changed into Selma and she felt like while she was on set that she had murdered a man but she went like very method and was just like so entrenched in it, but then was also being abused and humiliated by the man that was directing the film. Like, you know, the scene, and I think this is my favorite scene in the film, and I showed it in my editing class the other day. Okay. Um, and uh, all of my students were like, Why are you showing us this? And I was like, Because I love it. <laughs> this is the best scene in this film. Um, but uh, you know in the scene where she's on death row and she is um, saying goodnight to Siobhan Fallon and she's like, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Siobhan isn't, she's barely saying anything. And Siobhan says, you know, maybe, you know, um, if you listen in the grate, you can hear something because she's, at this point, Selma's in solitary confinement. And the way that she gets by in everyday life with all of the difficulties that she has is just like hearing rhythms on everyday objects and finding comfort in that and and making songs out of them but now she's been put in a point where she's in solitary confinement um she has no rhythms nothing to sing to um and you know her parole or security guard is saying like if you maybe put your ear up to the grate you'll be able to hear you know people singing in the chapel so try that so she puts her ear up and she starts singing um a song from the sound of music. And Lars von Trier was obsessed with having Bjork sing live on set and to have like those um, vocals recorded live, but they couldn't do that. They didn't have the technical capacity for it. Um, but here for this scene, all of a sudden he was saying to her, you're not going to sing with a guide track. I want you to sing a cappella." And she said, I don't feel uncomfortable. I, I don't feel comfortable doing this. Um, I'm really tired. I'm run down. I don't want to sing. And this is a person who takes, you know, her musical career um, very seriously and didn't feel comfortable doing this. And he forced her and essentially humiliated her and filmed her having a nervous breakdown during the scene. And yes, it's a beautiful scene. It's one of my most favorite scenes in that film. But I don't think that that kind of treatment and abuse to actors is necessary to incite that kind of performance. So while I'm fascinated with that scene, I find it to be deeply disturbing. Well, yeah, I mean, you're watching abuse. You're, yeah. you're actually watching abuse on screen. The only, yeah. other, the only other example I can think of, I mean, Francis Ford Coppola mm -hmm. uh, filmed Martin Sheen's breakdown in, mm -hmm. in Apocalypse Now and used it in a montage at the beginning of the film where we can't even really appreciate what's happening. Mm -hmm. uh, but he was notorious for treating people uh unprofessionally poorly badly on on set there was a i've never forgotten there was a, a premiere or movie line article on the set of dracula where mm -hmm. winona Ryder has to look conflicted at something yeah. while he's shooting and he just starts screaming at her on set you're a whore you're a failure monster and so gross yeah if you don't if you don't trust your actors to perform well this this gets to the whole heart of what direction is right like yeah. if you don't know how to get a performance out of someone without yelling, you're mm -hmm. probably not very good at getting performances out of people. Exactly. You're probably just a very insecure, uncreative person. Right. But and then you look yeah. at the final product and you look at Bjork's performance and this is the thing. Yeah. Like, I can't get away from it. She's amazing. She is amazing. And if that is because she is ripping herself open mm -hmm. or being ripped open on mm -hmm. camera, 
like the end result is I would never say that the means justify the ends and I feel myself dangerously coming close to something like that where I rationalize it but what I really mean is but it is it's alchemy whatever that is it did work and yeah, I know, right? Like it's, awful. it's just like, we have this piece so of painful, but you're, yeah, you're exactly right. We have this piece of art now. Yeah. Yes. And Bjork's okay. I hope. Bjork's she's okay. She's never going to act again. Yeah. 17 yeah. years later, we can all kind of go, well, it, that was rough, but, but it was, and it, yeah. I don't want to deny that. I don't want to, you know, Kidman wouldn't come back for the second Dogville picture because no. she had such a horrible experience on the first one. Supposedly. She said that she would, but then when it came time, yeah. she said uh, that there were scheduling difficulties. But sure. here's the thing is I've seen this kind of method used by other directors who shall remain nameless on actors who shall remain nameless Mm -hmm. and I've seen the impact like the personal impact that it has had on those people um, because that director wanted to play mind games with them and wanted to incite a performance and there was no consent in it and I think um, as a director consent is such an important thing if you're going to go there if you're going to go into that territory because you want to pull out a certain performance and you want to get a level of intensity or you want it to feel dangerous and you really want an audience to get a visceral reaction out of it i think you need to talk to your actors about it and say okay um i might be acting like this in a certain way or i might say this is that okay with you i'm doing this because i'm doing that are you cool with that right and I just don't understand why people don't think to have those kinds of conversations because I don't think that for actors it needs to be that kind of damaging experience. I like as a director um, for my films anyway. Like in in Never Eat Alone, I I really prodded my grandmother to go into some really intense territory like she's talking about an ex love that she had when she was 20 years old okay and um and it didn't work out she married my grandfather um and then he passed away about 20 years ago and started having regrets about it and that's what never eat alone is about and it's half fiction and half documentary and i got her to really go there and to talk about um, how that all went down um, on camera, but I had a lot of conversations with her about that beforehand right. because I think that there's a certain amount of power that you have when you're a person with a camera in front of someone else um, and you, they haven't consented to what they're doing. You have so much power and responsibility and you have enough power in your hands as it is. I just don't understand why you need to go to that level. Right. And you also have the additional level of editing power. You can, totally. You, you ultimately, as the filmmaker, will have final say over whatever happens. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah, no, why is it necessary? It, it's just, there, um, I was thinking of, of, Christopher Walken has told stories about mm-hmm. being manipulated by mm. filmmakers once, um, by Cronenberg on The Dead Zone, okay. who would pull a gun out, a starter pistol, and fire it to make people wince for those psychic moments. Yeah. And they all knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. And what you see is the a split second of tension in the actor's eyes before the shot because they start to anticipate the sound. Yeah. And it works because it's disquieting and strange and it's accompanied by a musical sting, but they yeah. knew it was happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the other story also involves firearms. He hates guns mm-hmm. uh, and, and is 
hyper-conscious of, of prop guns on sets, even before the Brandon Lee incident. Mm-hmm. This, both, both of these stories actually happened in the 80s. The other one was on the set of At Close Range, James Foley's film, where there's a scene where Sean Penn mm-hmm. points a gun at him. Mm-hmm. And he went walking and, and Foley and the arms supervisor, they did all the stuff that you're supposed to do. They looked at the gun. They made sure it was blank. They made sure there was no... It wasn't going to be fired. That it was clean. That everything was going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And two seconds before they called action... Penn ran off stage and swapped the gun out and just said, I'm swapping the gun out. I don't like this one. Came back and Walken is terrified in the scene. He is actually physically terrified. He's moving Mm -hmm. his hands to block the shot. He can't stand the idea that this thing is being waved around. And knowing, like, before I knew that, it Mm -hmm. was a really intense scene and it felt uncomfortably real. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, I'm watching someone being abused. Yeah. Like, it's just horrible i don't know if foley was complicit in it or not i don't mm-hmm. think he was but yeah. when he tell when when walken tells the story and you look at the clip it is just that's not right no it's not right yeah. and i don't know what i'm so fascinated about i feel like maybe this is like a, a silly question but like as like audience members who are like thinking feeling people something that i have such a hard time with is like Yes, Lars von Trier is a masterful filmmaker who makes really beautiful films, but he's also abusive. He's a misogynist. He's racist. Um, And I just have such a hard time with it, and I feel so complicated um, about celebrating directors who make films through violence and abuse. Mm -hmm. And yet I can't take my eyes away. Like, what does that, I don't know, like, what does that say about us that we enjoy it so much? I wonder if that's it. Like, if it isn't just the pull of watching, of knowing that on some level you're watching real suffering uh, within the context of fiction. You know, like, we know Bjork is fine. We know that David Morrison and and everyone else went home that night and everything was okay. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you're watching this misery this progression into just darker and darker and uglier and uglier things. Yeah. Uh, it was the same with Breaking the Waves, which is, you know, only uh, excused by the fact that the, the, the arc of the story is only excused by the fact that it's a martyrdom tale, that you're watching a saint be canonized in real time mm-hmm. through her degradation and suffering. Yeah. And if God wasn't present, then you're just watching awful, bad choice misery. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens in Dancer in the Dark. I mean, that's the thing that yeah. really fascinates me. It's like, well, for my next trick, I'm going to take away the escape. I'm going to take away the idea that there is a supernatural or, or extra natural forgiveness involved. Yeah. She's just going to go through this. And for no reason. Ultimately, mm-hmm. I mean, given opportunities to save herself, Selma doesn't. She chooses this path out of no i know yeah how do i express it she chooses this path out of a misguided or well there's just like so many moments where i'm just like improve your communication yeah like the scene where she's in there with the lawyer and you just have this like moment of hope and i always get suckered into this freaking moment (laughs) every time you can swear if you want oh i can okay i get suckered into this fucking moment it's quite the moment <laughs> when the second lawyer comes and uh, her friend Kathy has set it up and um, she she feels like she's going to get a second chance. She's going to get a new testimony, all that kind of stuff. And then she finds out that the money is the money from the tin mm-hmm. for her son's 
surgery and then she just backs up and she just shuts down i mean like why not say can the money come from somewhere else yeah it's you know and i guess like is it is it because my question is is it because she's is she too anxious is is there just like this wall of like anxiety she's shutting down she's she's panicking she doesn't see any other way or is it because salma's character is so noble that she wouldn't dare ask for that kind of money to save her own life Right, because this will save her son, or might save her son. Mm-hmm. And again, martyrdom. That's yeah. that's one true thing completely. Yeah. You know, uh, with melancholia too, Kristen Dunst takes on the suffering of the world and it doesn't actually help. Mm-hmm. But the the thing he does is make you, he makes you furious at these characters who are who we're supposed to love. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell even now if that's a comment on the character's limited worldview. You know, is that as yeah. much of a metaphor as her own diminishing eyesight that mm-hmm. she just can't see She's what's possible? Blinded. Yeah. Or is she just dumb uh-huh. in his vision? Does he see her as just too blinkered and ignorant of possibility to save her herself as well? And I don't know. Right. And yeah. her interpretation of the the role makes me think that it's more martyrdom like she's making the conscious she's sacrifice too proud, but is I that think. yeah but is that something believable anymore like would mm. are we as an audience we're more sophisticated we must be able to he must know that we know there are other ways and mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm, her not mm-hmm. choosing them is a statement of some sort and that's yeah. what i found so frustrating in that scene as well as what's actually happening is that wait a minute what did you think what, yeah. It's like he's leaning totally. back and going, well, of course, this yeah. has to happen because otherwise we don't get to the ending I want. Of course. So he's got his hand on the tiller and he will not budge. Yeah. But it's really frustrating it's as an audience so member because I know there's a better way. Well, I just got a brainwave. Please. Here's a perspective. Bring it. What if she didn't communicate or you know didn't try to problem solve or find another way just because she was just so goddamn afraid? She just wanted to protect this operation at all costs. Her because, son's operation. Yes, yes, her son's operation. Um, because here are the details, which is that her son, she's going blind. She's about to go blind. She's worked to the point where she is almost blind. She's been taking on night shifts. Um, and she's at the end of the point where she um, cannot work anymore for the money. She's that, That's it. She gets fired from her job because she shuts down the plant, because she's not... Uh, she jams the machine because she can't see. Um, but with her son's operation, the thing that she's trying to protect, because she won't see her son, Gene, when she's in prison, um, because she's afraid of him getting stressed out, because if he gets stressed out, then his eyesight... Will deteriorate. Will deteriorate and it will worsen. So what if she just doesn't problem solve or she's just so absolute about it because she's afraid? She just doesn't want to problem solve because she just needs to protect this at all costs. Like, life has been so awful... Like, up to this point, why not just fight for the one thing right. that she has, the one thing that she's been saving for? It's the Stella you know? Dallas thing, right? Like yeah. The, the, the root of melodrama is in sacrifice. Yeah. And so if she's, convi- yeah, if she's convinced herself that that's the only way, then it does. I mean, of course it makes emotional sense. Mm-hmm. But from a narrative point of view, from a, from a sitting in a theater going, wait, I know outside that door there's another world. Mm-hmm. I guess that's it, that the... Vontrue's genius is that he traps us within her limited field of vision. Like, yeah. we're, we're, we're literally stuck with her. Yeah. But we're also unable... I guess that's it. You just want her to... You're rooting for her to see more. Mm-hmm. To realize more. And so it's not just a metaphor, but, but it's actively happening. But she doesn't. She's happening. going blind. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. We've come to... <laughs> 
it's okay. It's hard. It's no, hard. I love talking about this film. It's like it's painful, but it's also really cathartic for me. I'm yeah. just I'm so attached to Bjork and her performance in this film. I'm a really big Bjork nerd. Too. Yeah, that's why I chose this film. Oh, I'm glad you did because um, it's it's the first von Trier uh, in in on the show, which is two years in. I'm kind of surprised. Oh wow. Um, I figured someone would have picked one of the one of the more recent ones. Like no one's picked Antichrist, which you would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be. It's just loaded. There's one. all kinds of stuff, but but his yeah. his movies are. I, I I write him off, and then he wins me back. I, uh, I really I did not enjoy Antichrist at all. It, it yeah. felt really mannered and forced. And then he uh, made Melancholia, and it's like, oh, I got gotcha. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You were back on track. Yeah. With him suddenly again. And, yeah. And Dancer following Breaking the Waves is sort of the same thing because it does feel like his. It's like the the apex of his cruelty. Uh, in one movie, where it's just it's torture without release, it's mm-hmm. it's a beautiful aestheticized ugly film because mm-hmm. it was shot in standard definition and it looks like crap. And I'm assuming sure that's was. why it's never been released in high def. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is a Blu-ray in Germany, which I'm keep thinking I should order. I would love to see that because I watched it in standard definition yeah, recently I mean, and it was rough. That's all I got. Yeah, these, <laughs> yeah. these I mean DVDs look okay on the projector, yeah, but they're yeah, not. Yeah. Like, they're not great. They're not the best. But and the and the saturation look in the musical sequences, that's something mm-hmm. that would probably benefit from a new master, if nothing else. I, mean, I think so. A 19, like a 2000 and 2001 DVD master. What's interesting is Lars von Trier wasn't happy with the coloration in those scenes really? with the saturation. Yeah, he didn't he didn't really like it. But the problem was is that he felt like there wasn't enough of a or people thought there wasn't enough differentiation from the regular scenes to the musical scenes. Sure, so that's yeah. why they they saturated them in color. But the thing is, is I I feel like there already is a differentiation in camera work because in the dialogue scenes, all of the camera work is handheld. It's mm-hmm. very close, done by Lars von Trier himself. And then during the musical scenes, they had the one hundred camera. Oh. Massive, massive. Yes, yeah. the 100 cameras on the on the rigs, and I think they were yeah, the Sony cameras. I was about to say Sony PD150s, but I don't think that's what they were. And then they correct, they got a special lens for them because he wanted them like in like a wide like yeah, cinema, yeah, yeah. Uh, form. So everything was shot very squished and then stretched out. Um, but the differentiation is that everything in those musical scenes, all of the an- angles are very obscure and naive and like all over the place, but no. also really beautiful, but locked off. Yeah. So I feel like that it's weird. differentiation it's a... is there, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's absolutely no question they're, they're happening on a different plane, mm-hmm. I mean, aesthetically and, and conceptually. Um, and it's weird. He did that other experiment, um, uh, The Boss of It All. Mm-hmm. I can never remember the title. Yeah. Uh, where the cameras are randomly chosen, locked uh-huh. off in multi-camera situations. Yeah. And it's just frustrating. It, mm-hmm. In Dancer, it works. It does, It, it feels... Yeah. yeah, it feels like exactly what is needed. It's a radical solution to a problem that maybe didn't even exist. Totally. But, again, it feels of a piece. And maybe, again, that's why I'm so pissed off at the movie, because if you can come up with... A strategy that smart, then surely you can find a way for this character to survive. But he doesn't want her to. Totally, yeah. Doesn't. He just wants to rip her apart, and that's like another thing that that really bothers me is that. And I was talking about this with my friend Kiva the other day, and she said, "You know, why does he always have to do this on the backs of women?" 
Why do women have to do the emotional labor in these narratives, but also on set yeah. in order for these films to come together? Like, I, I think it's BS, <laughs> to be honest with you. You know, I think it's a little cowardly. It's, yeah, I mean, the only, I'm, I'm racking my brain trying to figure out if, if there's a male sufferer in any of, like, Antichrist, Defoe suffers. Sure. But they both do. Like, yeah. That's, it's not like... Um, but does he slice yeah. his testicles off? Well, not really. The way that Charlotte Gainsbourg yeah, does? Yeah, Gainsbourg is you know the one. I mean? Gainsbourg is still... She's the inflictor. Yeah. Uh, she is suffering profoundly as a character, mm-hmm. but when the movie takes its turn, she's the she's the villain. So even though a man is suffering, the woman is still worse and worse Always. off. Always. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that it's interesting because um, sometimes those films are like a reflection of the world around us. And the way that women are treated, some sometimes in an amplified way, but for me it doesn't work because he's also treating his actors in that way. Like I was watching the Dogville Diaries this week, oh, yeah. and there's this scene where Nicole Kidman—they're filming Nicole Kidman being raped. At the end of the scene, you hear Lars von Trier say, "Well, that was fun." You know, and if you're a professional actor on set and you're putting yourself into this mindset and your boss is saying that was fun, like as a director, I think it's your responsibility to say like, hey, are you okay? Do you mean, do you need a minute? And then, so the next part was Nicole Kidman. Have have you seen this? Oh. Um, you know, when Nicole Kidman is sitting down with him and she says, you know, um, I think that like you're doing yourself a disservice by like treating these scenes like you know like you're a teenager yeah, you know she's like, actually trying to help him be a better filmmaker she's schooling after him after that yeah and yeah. she's educating him so my question is too is like yes i love his films but it makes me so angry that women have to do that that labor and that that work it's just like it's bananas. There's yeah. a there's a better way. Yeah, the cost of working with Lars Montier should not be that you have to make him feel better about what he's doing. Yeah. And he seeks for it all the flippin' time. Like, I was watching an interview with um, him and Bjork at Cannes, and uh, it's like a French TV Sank interview, and the um, announcer says, like, hey, Lars, like, could you tell us what it was like working with Bjork? And he pauses for a second, and the announcer's like, can you hear me, Lars? And he's like, yeah, I can hear you. And he's like, pretty awkward and Bjork is sitting right beside him and he says you know I would love to say to Bjork a lot of things but she whenever I tell them to her she doesn't believe me and then he says Bjork is there anything you'd like to say about me (laughs) you know and I I just think that that's so it's so weak so it's it's very um it's very for a man that makes such incredible films it's such an an immature way of behaving. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, it's just facile deflection. Why not answer the question? I've never yeah. understood this about people at press conferences. If you're sitting in the damn chair, yes. you know people are like, why? And Delon does this too. You know, mm-hmm. he, he turns it into platforming and, and uh, this, this whole misery thing that he does for himself. Although at least his films aren't misery porn in the way that, yeah, yeah, that yeah. Funtrues can be. But I do find it fascinating. They're, they're, I find their work infuriating mm-hmm. and occasionally great, mm-hmm. and it's the greatness that keeps me coming back, even though I'm pretty sure I could live the rest of my life quite happily without ever watching another 
of their movies, except that then I might miss the next Melancholia, yeah, yeah, or yeah, yeah. the next Breaking the Waves, mm-hmm. or even the next Dancer, which is, you know, like, it's not my favorite of his films, but I can't deny that it's one that I like, uh, yeah. as opposed to some of the other ones. Uh, and then with Stallone, he's making a movie with pretty much everybody I like in his next film, so I, mm-hmm. I have to come back for that, even though um, Only the End of the World was a nightmare. So oh, It really was. It really was. It was a total nightmare. The mechanical bird or the CG bird at the end, just like, <laughs> that was just like the cherry on the cake. It was yeah. just like, this is, this is a rough night, man. Yeah, I saw that in the middle of the day, I think. It was like the 2 p- the 1 p.m. or the 2 p.m. screening that day at oh, Tiff press screenings. Yeah. And it was just, wow, it's the shortest thing I saw today, and it felt five hours long and suffocating. I just, ugh. Yeah. Oh, Sorry, I'm not, gosh. we're not going to turn this into... <laughs> Randomly shitting on Xavier Delon. I mean, I certainly could. But the the echoes are really interesting because I I do find that, you know, if you're going to be the kind of filmmaker who takes lessons from Von Trier, this is what happens. Mm -hmm. Where you prize a certain level of psychological intensity Mm -hmm. and emotional uh, mayhem, Mm -hmm. torture, uh, and yet somehow you feel like the victim when people ask you why that was necessary. Yeah, it's it's I think it's a really pathetic way of reacting. If you're going to be like that, then own your behavior. You know, take responsibility yeah. for it. And I I believe in his artistry. I mean, I certainly learned a ton from Dancer in the Dark. Um, it was the first film, I mean, it's not a docufiction film. I work a lot in docufiction, but it was the first film that I saw that really blended characteristics of documentary and fiction filmmaking. I'd never seen that right. before. And as a 19 year old, my like brain just like imploded. And I think that his filmmaking certainly had an influence on the way that I made my films, um, because I never really saw a film that dipped so deep into fantasy and reality and just fluctuated back and forth like that. And in thinking about Dancer in the Dark, I think that it had an influence, um, I think subconsciously in the way that I made Never Eat Alone, which looks a lot like documentary. It is a docufiction, but there are little moments of fantasy that are done, but with archival footage that I used. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's 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 complicated. I feel so complicated about this film, and I have so much to say about it, which is why I guess I chose it because it's a it's a fancy one to unpack. <laughs> it is well, you it's, know. I mean, it's good that it's rewarding in that way, as opposed to just oh, and this thing that he did, and I still don't understand this bit, which has happened a couple of times mm-hmm. when people are just fascinated by strange choices although that was mostly me when Ann Donahue picked American Hustle why would he do this why does that happen why but um, well as far as Dancer in the Dark goes and and I think you Mm. basically just answered uh, answered it but the closer the the final question on the podcast is always the same which is Mm -hmm. like what of it have you incorporated into your own creative DNA is there a reference or a, a lift or have you even just outright stolen anything from it are you going to make a multi camera musical somewhere down the line uh Probably not. (laughs) Probably not. I don't think, no, I mean, I think I was definitely inspired in terms of like docufiction and what that form can look like and the sense of intimacy that you can achieve Mm -hmm. um, as a director as well during your own camera work. I do a lot of my own camera work as well um, with the help of my partner, 
um, Calvin, but I, yeah, I don't think that there's anything from, well, actually, I think the sense of, of sincerity, and I always go back to Bjork's sincerity in her performance and how real she was and how, um, fresh that felt and how heartwarming it is. And, um, I think that her performance for me just kind of inspired a goal to aspire to when working with actors in terms of getting that kind of, um, realness, um, and, and sincerity. Um, I think I'd never seen a film where I had just seen someone behave so naturally on, on camera before. So I think that, that definitely influenced me, but I don't. I don't know that I'd be doing any musicals anytime soon. Sometimes there are musical elements, but I don't really work a lot with music. Um, I certainly, you know, I I would like to get the same kind of you know performances, like intense performances, out of my actors. But as you know, I, I don't think I you, would ever use his methods. Yeah, <laughs> well, you can do it if you can do it without torturing them. Yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, I just don't think that that's, I just don't think it's necessary. I just, I don't think it is at all. Because in all of the the press and all of the interviews that I've watched with them post the film, they just look so uncomfortable. And I mean, let's be honest, like making a film is very hard. It is war. It is really difficult. But I don't think that it justifies bad behavior. I think that um, people act out when they're not getting their way or if they just like they're not able to find any other creative solutions or ways of working in and filmmaking in life itself is hard enough. So so why not just make it a pleasant experience and communicate better, you know? Yeah, I do find it fascinating to wonder or not to wonder. I, I I find it fascinating that he works with people like Catherine Deneuve and Lauren mm-hmm. McCall mm-hmm. and, I mean, even Kiefer Sutherland, like industry mm. veterans who are kind of famous for not taking shit. Yeah. And I just wonder how he handles that. Like, what would what was Ben Gazzara's experience? Yeah. And well, I know that he, he, he was afraid of Lauren Bacall. He should be. Yeah. She's very intimidating. She's a badass. Yeah. I was really sad when she passed away. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, she says in the Dogville Confessions, you know, he's a great director, but he's afraid of me. And I think it's because she's a strong, outspoken woman. You know, I think that that definitely intimidated mm-hmm. um, him. I think he just doesn't react well um, to opposition. And I think, like, yes, also, he's an ambitious director. I also learned that he, you know, for those 100 camera shoots, he wanted to shoot them on 35 millimeter. Well, I mean, when... Originally. When no one will say no, then sure, yeah. 135 millimeter cameras. Yeah. That is bananas. I know, that would have been so expensive. Well, this was right after The Matrix, right? Right after Bullet Time and everybody started getting into Can you imagine if they had done Dancer in the Dark and Bullet Time? I mean, there's a way. <laughs> God, visually? <laughs> that would have been a 
little ridiculous. Well, but you could. Put, but maybe fun. It would have been gorgeous, and yeah. you could have watched suffering happen. You know, at in one twenty-fourth speed. Yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah. I don't think the audience is ready for a Lars von Trier movie in three D. No, I don't think so. But there that were would kill people with the digital cameras. There were sixty-eight hours of footage. Yeah. For one freaking scene. Yeah. No, doing that in 35 would cost as much as the movie. Yes. Over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The kids today don't really understand just how expensive it was to shoot something. No. Like you're dealing with with film exposure and processing and then prints and everything. Now with DCPs, I love it when I get to say the kids today. I'm sorry. I don't don't mean to to implicate you in that. No, that's okay. Digital has made all this stuff. Mm -hmm. You can be incredibly ambitious and you can have a hundred digital cameras Mm -hmm. uh, for a fraction of the cost. Although Mm -hmm. then it was probably still pretty expensive because it had to be output to film and all of that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, this, it does feel even like the standard definition aspect of it. Now, the fact that it's hard to find, uh, on disc in a high def version or almost impossible to find this it really does feel like a pivot point was mm-hmm. happening all around them yeah and you have this little cocoon where von Trier can do whatever he wants almost mm-hmm. whatever he wants he wasn't mm-hmm. allowed to shoot 35 but yeah you know like he had everything else open to him and everybody was willing to go along with it uh-huh and i just don't think he's had that opportunity again right because after this he went back to the idiots and that's true and then uh the boss of it all he was sort of in um in purgatory for a while well dogville right. would have been what 2003 2004 i think so and he has this like very funny spoiled brat moment in the dogville diaries and he says my producer doesn't love me right. if my producer loved me they'd you know rein me in and they would just tell me to stop and I, I think that, you know, part of it is, too, is he doesn't realize the kind of power and privilege he has. He's not able to recognize yeah. that and understand the effect and impact of his actions because he works with actors that are just willing to give all of themselves, you know, to what he's doing, to his over. And I think as a director, you really have to realize what that power is and how it affects other people, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, his producer's not saying anything to him because they're terrified. Yeah. You know, they're just scared. I mean, of course they are. It's Lars von Trier. Yeah. He is a tantrum guy. I mean, yeah. like, even professional, off stage, I'm sure, off, off when he's not shooting, mm-hmm. he probably does respond very badly to everything in the world. Yeah. It just feels like, I mean, based on the press conferences, based on all of his professional appearances, and I just, I just, you know... I know he's an artist, but it must be exhausting. There has to be a better way. Well, there, yeah, I think I, there is a better there, way. Yeah, there clearly yeah, is, because yeah. lots of other people do this and and make people comfortable on sets. I, um, when you were talking about the Dogville rape scene, my thoughts immediately went to yeah. uh, Evan Rachel Wood talking about how Patricia Rosma handled a similar scene on Into the Forest, which was yeah. be there for her, give her time, make sure the crew was empathetic, if not sympathetic, and, you know, go through the scene, but also... Mm-hmm. They've, they've spoken about it openly that they were really careful and concerned mm-hmm. and, and you need you need to do that I, I think I, I totally mean, agree he's sort of the argument against that but mm-hmm. only for his own work and only if you're willing to consciously overlook what you're watching while it's happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm, as an audience mm-hmm. member it's a, it's a conundrum that I've never you know it's with, with the last Tango in Paris story that resurfaced uh, last year mm. where Bertolucci and, you know and that I've only seen the first 15 minutes of the last tango in Paris I was talking about this I got to oh, the yeah. butter and the finger oh that seemed like it was further in I, I don't know I, 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 yeah uh, <laughs> I, I fell 
like it was in the first 20 minutes. It was a film that I, I need to revisit it, obviously. I've never seen the rest of it, but I started watching it um, a long time ago. It was when I was 20 and I got to the butter in the finger and I was like, I didn't know that you could do that. Yeah. With that, and then I, I just uh, freaked out, and then I yeah. shut it down. But that's I didn't mean to interrupt your story. No, 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 that's, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's that's probably. But I wonder how, like, how much of that was uh, freaking out because of what you were seeing, and because of the vibe of the scene, which is incredibly uncomfortable. Oh yeah. Even though it's not supposed to be, it's yeah. supposed to be a seduction, and yeah. I think the fact that Schneider is unprepared for it uh-huh. really reads, and it yeah. ma- it reads through, and it makes the scene play differently. Uh-huh. Um, and when that story resurfaced, people were immediately arguing, okay, well, it wasn't rape. It wasn't assault. It was just, they didn't tell her everything was going to happen. So mm-hmm. You can make whatever argument you want, but it's, you, it comes back, as you said, to consent. And yeah. she didn't know this was coming. Yeah. And it's weird and unpleasant and wrong mm-hmm. and it's happening and the camera sees it and completely it charges the scene in a way that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, People need to call the behavior what it is. You know, a lot of people say, but it was a film set, but it was this, but it was that. If there was no consent, if they didn't know, that is an assault. Yeah. And that's just what it is. And I think until people start using clear language to label these actions, um, we're not going to be able to change that culture, you know? Um, when we watch Lars von Trier's films and we say, like, woo, like, what he did was really awful to his actors, but what an amazing yeah. film. I was saying that half an hour ago. Yeah, and I'm still saying it. It's, it's, it's hard, but I think what we need to start talking about and, and clearly labeling it is just saying, like, that... That's abuse. That is abusive behavior and getting rid of the the butts. Right. You know? And, um, yeah, that's why I was so... Like, I don't know that I have the answer, but that's why I, I was so interested in talking about this today. Because it's a it's a complicated thing to, to unpack. But I think, for me, I think the bottom line is that um, treating actors poorly on set putting them in situations that are dangerous for their mental health and for their physical safety, um, where you're putting that at risk is not okay. I think the end never justifies the means. Yes, I'm happy that the film exists, but I I don't think that what he did was was okay. I think a more courageous um, person could have achieved the same results. Um, without inciting that kind of abuse. I mean, I have to believe that because um, I, I want us to live in a world where that kind of stuff doesn't happen. I know that that's, that's very idealistic and very rosy of me to say. I don't, but... I don't know. I don't think that's wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, it's that the Douglas Adams line about the woman who comes up with, uh, in, in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, about a woman who just happens upon a way where um, everyone can be happy and no one has to get nailed to anything. Uh, and it's it's a it's a passing joke about uh, about Christianity and religious belief, but I think yeah, it's not even utopian to ask for people to just not be awful to each other. It's yeah. it's somehow no, that's now agree. in our current political climate. It's become an awkward thing to say. Yeah, where it's like, could we not be assholes? But that's yeah. kind of the only thing that matters. Yeah, I think I think it is the yeah. only thing that matters. I think it's all we have. You know. Yeah. So let's go from there. Yeah, yeah, let's go from there. But I had some fun things to talk to you about. 
Sure, you can bring him up. About Dancer in there's the still, Dark. There's still time. Which is that, and I think this is hysterical, and I say this laughing, but I I learned that, so you know the, the jail scene um, where it's the, hundred, the famous 107 steps song, and she's right. counting her steps with um, Siobhan Fallon. Um, you know, originally, um, Vincent Patterson, the choreographer, wanted the prisoners to be naked. Sure. Did you know that? I did not know that. Isn't that funny? Can you imagine that scene if they were naked? Funny. Bjork is walking to her death and she has naked prisoners pirouetting. I mean... Around her. Like, isn't that funny? I guess... Well, you know, all I can think of is how distracting it would be. It would be very distracting. I'm I'm really glad that they, like, decided against it. Yeah. (laughs) But it would be... It would be radical... Yeah. As an image, and certainly, you know, like, Von Trier's had no problem with nudity in the past or uh-huh. subsequently. Yeah. But, yeah, it just, you, it just, I can't, I can't see that decision working, I guess. And he was saying, you know, like, it just would show how vulnerable the, the prisoners are in there. And, you know, the, the actors knew that, you know, it just wasn't gratuitous nudity, that it sure. had a purpose. And I was like, okay. <laughs> But I, think, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, surrounding, surrounding someone with naked people in that moment in her life, in her story arc, would just be a distraction. Yeah. No, but I guess it, the fact that they didn't win, like that that didn't happen. It really, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad that that didn't happen. It validates the choices. Uh, you know the theater scene where they're sitting there and they're watching the film um, and Selma's practically blind and there's a guy in the theater who turns around and because Catherine Deneuve is like describing what's happening right. and he's like, shut up, be quiet. And um, then Catherine Deneuve starts dancing her fingers on Bjork's hand to show her where people are dancing. First of all, that is an extremely heartwarming scene that yeah. just like that knocks me down every time. But did you know that Lars von Trier was supposed to play that actor? In the movie theater. That makes perfect sense. But because tensions were so high between him and Bjork, he decided, smart frickin' move, not to do it. Um, Which I I think was really wise. And what's funny is I was in a theater last week watching Tony Erdman. Mm -hmm. Didn't get a chance to see Tony Erdman during the festival. Um, And I was really excited to see it. And there were two men sitting behind me talking about pizza, talking about their pizza meal in the middle of Tony Erdman very loudly. So I turn around and I just go, shh, I'm I'm the Tiff Shusher. I'm a Shusher. I like to watch my movies in silence. And they kept talking. And then I just said, please, you need to be quiet. And then this one guy yells at me, thank you. And then whispers in my ear, my friend is deaf. And I kind of just like Mm -hmm. freaked out and I was like, okay, what does that mean? And then immediately I thought of that scene in Dancer in the Dark and I was like, but no, I was like, Bjork is blind and he's saying that this man's deaf, but they're talking back and forth to each other. There's two different voices. And also Tony Erdman is subtitled. Right. And they're not, there's no pizza in Tony Erdman. There's no pizza. And they're talking about pizza. It was so weird. That is... It was so... Like, I've seen some, like, poor excuses for talking in a theater. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I've sh- I'll shush people and then I will follow the shush with a shut the fuck up because they mm-hmm. have no idea 
how irritated. And I can, I also, I have the, I have the advantage of a really harsh dog voice that I can mm-hmm. bring up. Like mm-hmm. the same thing I yell at Dexter to get him to stop mm-hmm. eating garbage in the street is exactly how I will tell someone to stop talking in a movie theater. And they get terrified because I sound like a psychotic. Yeah. I sound like I could actually murder them. And I want to, but, but well, it's, that's wrong. You know, there's a line that I've started using recently. Oh yeah. I say to someone who, like, it usually sometimes turns into confrontation because people just want to keep talking. Mm-hmm. My line is now, does this look like your living room? Oh, I, yeah, I've definitely had similar. Actually, what yeah. I have said is you're not in your fucking living room. Oh, good. Which yes. scares them. Yes. Uh, and the other one used to be like, did you pay to get in here? <laughs> and they say, yeah. And I say, yeah. okay, so did I. Be quiet. Yeah, good one. And that's, yes. that's weird and diffusey. Uh-huh. I find that's much less of an escalator. Yelling yeah. at people, although it feels so good. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it ruins the experience for everybody. Yeah, and, and then you have adrenaline that. pumping through your veins for the rest of the film. Like, I had adrenaline oh, yeah. pumping through my veins for two hours during Tony Erdman. Which would damp that movie up considerably. Sure did. <laughs> sure did, but didn't enjoy it as much as no. I could have. But it was just so weird because I was able to like I thought right away of Dancer in the Dark because I was like this is familiar and then I was like wait a minute in that movie Bjork is blind (laughs) and she needs to know what's going on and they're not even talking about what's happening in the in the the film they're talking about pizza if your friend is deaf and you're talking about pizza there are at least two problems in that conversation that have nothing to do with the movie yeah no it was very uh, it was very bizarre yeah. It was really, really, really weird. I'm with the Alamo Drafthouse guys. We should be able to just text the usher while you're in the theater. Although then, of course, that means pulling out your phone. So that's not good. No. No. It's never... No, that's never There is good. no... Yeah, there is no perfect answer unless we all retreat to our living rooms. But then... I think you just need a panic button these days. Because what I'm finding is that I tell someone to be quiet during a film, and then I get yelled at afterwards. So this man yelled at me afterwards and uh-huh. said, how dare you? And you need to learn how to be more patient. And I was like, oh, what? (laughs) Uh, It just, I don't know. It just, it makes no sense. I'm, I'm a fan of the, um, the little thing at the Royal where they say, you fucking talk, we fucking kick you out. And then they light some shit on fire. That's the Alamo draft house reel. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's it. Yes, yes. That's what you were talking about. That is the best. That is the good way. That is the best way. (laughs) That is the, the, the best way. Yeah. Um, Something that I wanted to talk to you... I feel like I'm just jumping from no, thing no, to thing no, to thing because I had an agenda. Totally <laughs> <laughs> fine. Um, but what are your thoughts um, on the final scene in Dancer in the Dark? Like, I'm curious to know, like, you, do you, did you see the film when it was released yeah, back yeah. in 2000? Like, what, was, what were your reactions to that scene? Oh, just, it was dead silent in the theater. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, I think the mercilessness of it, well, like I was saying, it stands total contrast to Breaking the Waves, where mm-hmm. you have watched this woman debase herself and die mm-hmm. horribly. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you get the bells, you get, you get the cookie, like you get the movie saying it's okay. Yeah. And watching the opposite play out in Dancer in the Dark, where her death is on camera... Uh, and we're confronted with it and left with it. Mm-hmm. It's almost like Von Trier delighting in the fact that people are leaning forwards, waiting for the release. Like we're waiting for the bells, and there aren't any. 
Yeah. And it felt to me like a form of, it's not abuse of the audience because mm-hmm. he's told us what's going to happen and we get it. Mm-hmm. He has delivered what he promised. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was really stunned when the credits came up and that was the end. That that mm-hmm. was that there was no redemption, that there was no um, release, mm-hmm. reprieve. Not that I expected her to live. She's not going to live. That's the movie. Mm-hmm. But that there was no further point to her suffering, that the martyrdom is, is secular. Like, there is no... God doesn't approve at the end. If, if her son survives the operation, if her son gets his sight, then that's fine. That's her. That's what she wanted. We don't even know, though. We, we don't, don't even that. get exactly. that fucking cookie. We have nothing. I want that fucking cookie. Yeah. Give me the cookie. But that's his thing now. <laughs> it's cookie denial. That's yeah. his, new, his new thing. Melancholia. The planet misses us. Nope. You know, like, it's just... Yeah, here it is, yeah. buddy. Yeah. He, doesn't do, he doesn't do happy endings. And, and weirdly, it felt to me like that was the declaration at the end of Dancer in the Dark is that, you know, oh, I let you off the hook in Breaking the Waves. I, I gave Bess mar- uh, sainthood. I, I let it happen. We're not doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not a form of cruelty, really, because mm-hmm. it's just fiction and, you know, Bjork is... Bjork is okay, more mm-hmm. or less. She's she survived the the experience, and she's not really being hung. I get it. I understand. Mm-hmm. But it does feel weirdly, especially after Breaking the Waves, it feels like a bit of a betrayal or a fuck you to the audience. That you know, musicals are about yeah. musicals are about transcending mm-hmm. your situation. People burst into song because they can't express their emotions any other way. Mm-hmm. With Dancer in the Dark, he's already subverting that by using them as escape. You know, like the music yeah. is is a sort of desperation, the same way it is in Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, she goes into to these moments of you know musical grandeur to to escape these dire dire moments. Yeah, they're fugue states. In yeah, a weird way. I yeah. just I have this image that there is a reality that we don't see where she's just sort of standing there mumbling to herself in the moment, and everyone around her is sort of wondering if she's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we feel, like, we understand why it's happening when it's going on. Mm-hmm. And then to have it just be, nope, dead, that's... It's great, cinematically, because it is, it's a shock. Yeah, and I think, and also, when she gets hung, her voice gets cut off. She gets cut off, like, yeah. mid-song. And it's, you know, he's removing the character's voice, he's removing Bjork's voice. He's kind of just saying, like, this is where it ends. And your business here, or your life, is being cut short. And it's kind of... It's interesting, because on so many levels, I find it to be very violent. On another level, I, I really like films that are very real, and kind of say, like, this is reality. You know? And I don't think the film would be better if she got to finish her song. <laughs> yeah. And then she was hung, you know? Yeah. And it's also a really obvious metaphor in that she's cut off before she can finish that that yeah. you know, this is how her life has played out. This it's is where it ends. To be to be silenced in mid-song. But it's, yeah, it's jarring and awful. And at the same time, it's, it's a brilliant move because you mm-hmm. lean in, because you want to know what happens now. Well, you start to feel comfortable for a second that the, the suffering is so far prolonged. Mm. Like, you go from the 107 steps scenes where... Siobhan Fallon needs to help Bjork just, you know, she starts making beats with her feet. So you go from there where she's trying to help Bjork walk. And again, it's like a scene that really hits me in the feels 
the, in the same way where Deneuve is putting dancing the fingers on Bjork's yeah. hand in the movie theater. She's really trying to, to help her cope and to give her a rhythm to start walking. So you go from there, and then you have some relief. You have a musical sequence, but then she's there um, in the room where she's about to be hung. And um, you, you almost as an audience member, you just want to get it over with. Yeah. But it doesn't happen you know you see the setup and then you see the reversal of what she's seeing so you see Catherine Deneuve you see Kara Seymour the widow um I think Jeff is there her friend Jeff is there poor Jeff that's and that again it's so frustrating that she has all this possibility all of these opportunities for people to help her that she doesn't take yeah but we're yeah again we're forced to confront how powerlessness has seeped into everyone else too because they're there and they can't do anything yeah, and she, you, you think it's just going to happen, but then she freaks out. They put the, the, what really kills me is when they put the hood on her and she starts saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. And, you know, it's kind of in some ways it's like, well, it doesn't matter. You're about to die. Yeah. You know, what does it matter that you can't breathe? Um, and, and, and then they take the hood off and then the security guard says, you know, this is a regular you know, and then there's the phone call, and then she starts singing, and then you start to feel that release again. Oh, and also, Catherine Deneuve comes back and gives her her glasses. Right. And you th- you think that maybe for a moment there might be some kind of chance that it might not happen, and then she starts singing, and you start to feel relief, and then you're just cut off. Yeah. I think it's a brilliant scene. It is. And again, it's torture. Like, it's mm-hmm. torture to us, it's torture to to her because how many takes must they have gone through it just feels like to get yourself to that emotional point over and over again everything about it is von Trier making you feel mm-hmm. and again I can't write it off I can't deny that it works the end result is really I powerful. yeah I I agree with you I am reviled and repulsed and disgusted by the way that he treats his actors and people and the way he behaves but that is why this film fascinates me there's just some kind of like magnetic energy about it that I'm just so in love with Um, and part of it could be too is that I just I love Bjork so much the soundtrack that she wrote for the the film is just the most beautiful breathtaking thing I've been listening to it all week because I knew I was going to talk about it and I you know it's just it's just a stunning stunning work that provides such a sense of of relief during these really awkward torturous scenes Mm -hmm. so it's it's I don't know it's a it's a beautiful combination of something (laughs) my thanks to Sophia Bogdanovitz whose first feature, Never Eat Alone, has its Toronto premiere at the Tiff Bell Lightbox this Saturday, March 25th at 8.30pm, accompanied by her short films A Prayer, An Evening, and Another Prayer. She's a fascinating talent, and I'm really looking forward to seeing Never Eat Alone. You can follow Sophia on Twitter at Sophia Golightly, Sophia with an F, all one word, and while the original New Line DVD of Dancer in the Dark is out of print, the film is now available as a Warner Archive edition, available from Amazon.com or WBShop.com or wherever you buy Warner Archive DVDs. There's also a Japanese Blu-ray that's compatible with North American players. You can find that on Amazon.com, too, for like 27 bucks. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. 
you don't have to make it sing or anything. Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you're just too darn loud.